Hey, and welcome to episode 11. I am super excited to introduce you to someone that I recently learned about in this last year. I've been super impressed by his journey in the medical field and in more of what would be a holistic space. And Stuart J. Fishbein has been practicing obstetrics for over 40 years. He's a co-author of the book, Fearless Pregnancy, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, a Midwife, and a Mom. He has peer-reviewed papers on home birth, home breach birth, and very soon on home twin birth. After completing his residency at Senior Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Stu, as he's known by, spent 24 years assisting women in hospitals birthing. And then for the last 13 years, he's been a home birth obstetrician who works directly with midwives. He travels around the world as a lecturer and an advocate for reteaching breach and twin birth skills. He has respect for the normalcy of birth and honors informed consent. You should follow him on Instagram at birthinginstincts.com, and you can check him out on his podcast called Birthing Instincts. He wants to offer hope, reassurance, and safe and honest evidence-supported choices for women who understand that pregnancy is a normal bodily function and it's not to be feared. He also has a website, www.birthinginstincts.com, and if you're a guy listening to this, trust me, you want to hear it because at some point you're going to have a woman in your life that has birth. (laughs) if they haven't already. And it just is really a mind-blowing conversation. I can't wait to introduce you to him. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think doctors define high risk not by a number, but by stuff that they don't feel comfortable with. But the medical model sees pregnancy as an illness that needs to be treated. And that's where the big difference was between the midwifery model. Midwifery model sees pregnancy as a wellness, where occasionally can something can go wrong and they accept uncertainty. Whereas my colleagues in the obstetrical field don't accept uncertainty. They want to control everything. And they don't care if trying to control everything creates all kinds of chaos. special guest, Dr. Stu. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Keelan Cole, thank you for having me on. It's just an honor to be able to speak to an audience that I don't generally get to speak to. So I'm very excited to be here this morning. Yes. And you know, I told you this a little while ago, but I saw a video on my friend's Instagram of something that you were talking about. And I felt like you were saying my story, like what had happened to me. And I wanted to ask you because Our listeners might not know your journey, and I just didn't know, could you just tell us about your journey as a medical professional and how you got into what you're doing today? Sure. I never would have seen myself doing what I'm doing today when I first started out on this path. I went to the University of Minnesota Medical School, and I was very medicalized. And like all fourth-year medical students, you have to apply to different residency programs. I chose obstetrics simply because of a fluke on my third year of being a medical student, you, we rotate uh, through different services, and I had just come off hematology, oncology, and it was a pediatric service too. So we had children that were cancers and dying, and and my, my next rotation, instead of being up at four in the morning dealing with a seizure and a child, you know, with something terrible going on, I was up catching a baby, and it just 
hit me. I had no inkling that this was going to happen to me. It just, uh, it, it just did. And then I thought about, well, what's the life of an obstetrician like? And of course, as a medical student, you're really, na- you're really naive. You don't know anything. And you think it's all, all just catching babies. And it really isn't. There's a, you know, the hours are bad. The liability is bad. But you don't think about that stuff when you're a medical student. And so uh, I thought that obstetrics was really cool because it had um, a little bit of surgery, a little bit of psychiatry, a little bit of endocrinology. Um, you caught babies. And, of course, it had what I felt was most important for me in, in medical school was what's called longitudinal care. And that means you take care of people over time. I didn't want to be like an ER physician or a radiologist or something where you don't even see the patient or you see the patient once and you never see them again. So I applied for residency programs. I ended up matching in Southern California at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And I did four years there. And I came out very medicalized. And part of my training, I was very lucky because Cedars had an affiliation at that time with LA County USC Women's Hospital which at that time uh, in the early 80s was the busiest hospital in the country. They were doing about 22,000 births a year there, which if you break it down is about 65 babies a day. And you're there as a resident for every other day for four months. So that's like 60 60 days you're there and you're seeing everything. And in those days, things like forcepses and breaches and twins um, were, forcepses isn't a word by the way, (laughs) it just slipped out. Um, Forceps, breaches and twins. so it became just a normal thing. And we used to fight over who gets to take this lady because she has a breech baby because we love to do that sort of thing. And so then I came out of training and I opened up a practice sharing space with a bunch of other guys, uh, but not having partners. I was always in solo practice, but I was very medicalized. Um, I thought that what I knew from my training was the way it should be. And so I came out and I did those things that that sort of I mock now, like dressing for a delivery in a full hazmat suit with a woman with her legs up in stirrups, washing her bottom off with iodine, uh, catching her baby, clamping the cord immediately, showing her this beautiful thing that she just created, and then walking in across the room and setting it down in the warmer. This was just a normal stuff. And in, in medical school, I mean, excuse me, in residency, no, medical school, we cut episiotomies on every single woman. Even if it was her fourth baby, we cut an episiotomy. So this is how we were trained. And so you, if you only... You know, if, you, if that's all you know, that's all you practice. And so I came out very medicalized, but, you know, very sharp and thought I knew things. And I did for about 15% of women who had real medical problems. But the other 85%, I really didn't know anything about. But I didn't know that because you just don't know. And then another lucky thing happened to me. I was approached by local midwives in Southern California and asked to take their transports um, from home. And they're almost all non-emergent. Some were emergent. Some really needed some medical attention, but most were non-emergent. And they would come in for pain relief, for an epidural, and probably Pitocin. And then there'd be hours to sit around. And I would sit around with the midwives, and we began talking. And this is a composite memory, but we just would talk about the different styles and why they do what they do. And their patients were very well educated. And a lot of what they said made sense to me. And I began to realize that my training had no training in normal or the um, famous thing of, of the skill of doing nothing. Uh, we are always called to the room to do something. In training, you never see a woman laboring. You, you're, you're busy doing on the ward or whatever you're doing. And, and when the nurse calls you, you come to the room. And when you come to the room, you're expected to do something. So that's the mentality of most of my colleagues. They don't make us sit and watch a woman labor for hours. 
So they don't know what's normal. And I slowly began to change my practice over. And after about 10 years of solo practice, I, I collaborated with two midwives, uh, CNMs, and we went to the hospital-based practice in Ventura County. Cedar sinai at that time did not allow midwives to have privileges. So we went to Ventura County, which is just north of LA. And we had a very good thing going on for about 15 years. We had um, very low C-section rates. The midwives took care of everything that was normal. So they did the well woman exams. They did the pap smears. Uh, they did the normal prenatal visits. They did the postpartum visits. They did the normal deliveries. And then I, being an expert in problems, would come in and be the one that did the colposcopy or the biopsy for something that was abnormal or the surgery for an ectopic pregnancy or, or the breaches or the twins or the C-sections that were necessary in the hospital. And we did really well, but we were never accepted in the community. It was my first taste of sort of the discrimination that goes on against somebody who does something different outside what's called, you know, we could talk about this later, but it was what's called the standard of care. Because the standard of care is a, is a false term. It sounds good, but it doesn't mean anything because it only depends on who sets the standard and uh, in what community you're talking about. But uh, so after about 15 years, they were giving us a hard time and eventually they we're not going to renew our privileges. They had banned vaginal birth after cesarean, which is called VBAC, and they banned breach delivery. And they made it really hard. And their numbers were not anywhere close to ours. We had about a 7% C-section rate in our practice. And the largest group there had about a 25% C-section rate on a very similar cohort of women. So, um, but they they sort of ended us, and which, which was fortuitous for me because I never would have left the hospital setting. But I had been working with midwives by that point for almost 25 years. And I had really good friends in the midwifery community, and they encouraged me to start doing home births, as did the patients that were still in my practice that were due after the date that my privileges were supposed to be expiring. So they said, well, just come to our house. We'll, we'll do it. I, so they encouraged me. And the first couple ones I went to, I was a little bit nervous, quite honestly. Even after 25 years of practicing, it didn't seem... Like, well, what do you do if this happens? And what do you do if that happens? Like the questions that all the parents ask all the time. And uh, fortuitously, again, the, they were all beautiful deliveries. And then over time, I got bolder. And I said, well, if I can do uh, VBACs in the hospital, I can do them at home. And if I can do breaches in the hospital, I can do them at home. And if I can do twins in the hospital, I can do them at home. And diabetics and hypertensives. And I started to think outside of the box. But it was a really long, drawn-out process. Yeah, what do you think about because I, I love that you you pointed out that hey if I could deliver twins at the hospital then I could do it at home. What do you think the the kind of the perception or the phenomenon around why people feel so differently in a hospital setting as opposed to home? Like why they feel it's safer? Well we're we're culturally indoctrinated to believe that. We've had about four generations of American women that have been told that their bodies can't really give birth without medical attention. And so the medical model has has sort of to use a sort of inflamed word right now, groomed the American population to believe that they have to do that. And what happens is that they use, you know, they instill fear. From the very moment a woman walks into her first prenatal visit, it's sort of an awkward situation. The woman is nervous. Why are they nervous? You're just, you're, you're going in for wellness. I mean, I don't get nervous when I go see my chiropractor, but I, but I get nervous if I go, when I go see my OBGYN. I think it's the environment, like the way they make things feel right. for sure, because 
me and him have had a lot of conversations on this and I, all the things that you're saying, I'm like, that was me. Mm-hmm. That was me. That was me because I was told, and even though I would say my doctor really cared for me, I think she is medically indoctrinated, honestly, but um, she would say like, you can try this or you can do this, but it's not going to work. And so I was constantly, you know, fighting through, okay, well, what will work, you know? And I didn't, I didn't have the foresight or the insight, I guess, to go beyond what she was telling me at that season in my life. And so I think that it's very interesting. Like I have a friend right now, she had a C-section and she really wants to do things more naturally. And so she wants to have a V-back at home and she's very nervous because her doctor was like, well, you can try that, but I don't know how that's going to work out for you. You know, that kind of a sentence and the use of language in that way is what is really known as subtle coercion because you're skewing your counseling to get a patient down the path that you want them to take. And every tenet of medical ethics in every aspect of medicine, one of their tenets is that the use of coercion um, is never acceptable. And yet every single day in every doctor's office, you, you may walk into the doctor's office for your first visit. And here's a good example of something that I learned. And only, I learned this about five or six years ago after practicing, even in the home birthing world for over six years by that point. I, uh, I had a woman come to the office with a uh, just for an a, a interview. She was coming in for a first OB visit. And I, when you take a history in medicine, you, you ask them about what's called their chief complaint, which in this kind of, is just by itself uh, sort of a negative because she's coming in because she's pregnant. So what's your chief complaint? I don't have a chief complaint. I'm just pregnant. But that's what it's called. And then you, do, you go around the history of that. And then you ask about past medical history, past surgical history, meds, allergies, review of systems, family history. That's sort of how you take a history. So after I t- we talked about her pregnancy, I-, I went just the usual things. I said, do you, have any, do you take any meds? Do you have any allergies? And then I said, what I always have said for 20 years, it just rolled off my tongue. Do you have any other medical problems? And for the first time in my career, she looked at me and she said, what's the first one? Because when you say the word other, you're implying just that her pregnancy is a medical problem. And this is how obstetricians think. And the way I know that they think this way is because ACOG, the American College will be joined in some of their guidelines set, make, make a statement like this. They say, pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition. So if you have the leading organization that represents obstetricians in the United States, blatantly saying that every pregnant woman is a potential high-risk condition, then you, can't, you can see why your doctor would say, you can try this, but it's not going to work. Or you can see why they say, well, you know, you're over 35 now, so which is a bogus number. But every, every woman in America knows that that 35 thing means that they're an advanced maternal age or geriatric pregnancy, which is, which is just an also disempowering. I'm 35, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's a disempowering uh, terminology. Immediately, it sets you as right. patient and they're higher, in the hierarchy. And that's really not what happens, but the medical model sees pregnancy as an illness that needs to be treated. And that's where the big difference was between the midwifery model. Midwifery model sees pregnancy as a wellness where occasionally can something can go wrong and they accept uncertainty. Whereas my colleagues in the obstetrical field don't accept uncertainty. They want to control everything and they don't care if trying to control everything creates all kinds of chaos because that's their chaos. It's not nature's chaos. Nature's chaos bothers them. So they want to try to control everything. And so they use the throw Because I don't think they understand that, right? They don't understand nature's chaos, like you said. No, because they, that's not how they were taught. 
They're taught that, and right. here's another term like standard of care, which is really vague and meaningless, and that's high risk. What does high risk really mean? Doctors will say something's high risk, and then you ask them how risky is it, and they'll go, oh, it's very high. And you go, well, what's the actual risk? And they won't know. Right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think doctors define high risk not by a number, but by stuff that they don't feel comfortable with. So because, because for example, a, a really a good example I use when I teach my uh, seminars and breach and twin skills is when I, when they talk about the idea that about 20 some years ago, a paper came out that convinced doctors they should section all breaches, do C-sections for breaches. But the numbers on that didn't, didn't support that, but yet they adopted it right away by something called confirmation bias. Because here's the, here's the numbers, the best numbers on that come out of the Royal College of OBGYN, Green Top Guidelines from 2017. And the risk of having a neonatal death with a head down, vaginal delivery at term and an otherwise uncomplicated mother is about one in a thousand. So that's going to happen in, in, in those moms. In breech babies term with uncomplicated moms, it's about two in a thousand. So what these doctors are saying, if they say to section all breaches is because of one extra death per thousand women, we're going to C-section all breaches. That doesn't make any sense, but doctors label that high risk because they don't want to do breaches. They don't understand them. Yeah. Like my, so my mom, I was breached. So they, they did a C-section on my mom. Yeah. And you, you know, and so you were, you were, how, I don't know how old you are, Cole. How old are you? Uh, I'm about to be 32. So you're born in the eighties? Uh, no, 90s. 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 Okay. Yeah. I mean, breach was still commonly done in the nineties, but a lot of institutions were already tr not wanting to do vaginal breach. And this was, this paper came out almost as if they had requested it because there were so many papers that came out at the same time and, and that said the opposite, but they cherry picked the patient, the paper that they wanted to prove. So that's a sort of a combination of com uh, confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance because they ignore the papers that didn't say the things that they wanted them to say. They did the same thing with something called the ARRIVE trial, which is a inducing all women at 39 weeks. There were lots of papers that said, don't do that, but they ignored them and they picked the one that they did. That do. happened to me. <laughs> they tried with your first baby? Yes. Yeah. So they, it's interesting because I've learned a lot about this since then, but they, they said that my amniotic fluid was getting low. So at 39 weeks, we would just induce me, which your amniotic fluid can fill back up from my research if you just hydrate and that your body naturally does that from what I understand. Well, this is, a, this is not a session where I, I want to dig deep into what they told you, but the, the, what- <laughs> No, I know, but I'm saying- I I'll, just, I'll just say this. Your fluid getting low is not a diagnosis. All right. Yeah. Fluid gradually lowers at term. The question is, why were they looking in the first place? And that's the thing that. The, yeah. Cause she talked about induction since the beginning. And I was like, well, right. Yeah. I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I think my body can like do it on its own. She's like, well, we'll just put it as a request just in case. We'll just like request it. Just in case. So, why do they, why do they go ahead? Do they do that? Cause they make more yeah. money. Yeah. By inducing. And it's more controlled. Yeah, it's more expedient for them. And they think it's less liability for them. 
Because if you if people who listen to me know I have this very famous saying that I say all the time, which is all that matters to the medical model is a live baby in the bassinet. And how the baby gets in the bassinet is not their concern. And what happens to that baby in the future, that mother in the future, and that mother's future babies at that moment is not their concern. That's not to mean these these are evil people. This is this this is how they think. They want that baby in the bassinet. And and one of the things I will, would remind your listeners is that there's, I mean, they look at this stuff and it does, you don't even need a study to, to dictate what common sense would tell you. But when you have ultrasounds in the third trimester for no reason, and a lot of women just think that ultrasounds are, are part of the prenatal care package because we've been indoctrinated to believe them, but actually they're nice revenue generators for the people doing the ultrasounds. But, but when you have that, the chance of you having an intervention like an induction or a C-section goes up over by over 20% simply because you had a ultrasound to see the baby at 36 weeks. Because they'll often find something like your fluid is getting lowish, which doesn't mean anything, right? Is it low? Is the baby thriving? Is the baby not thriving? Is the baby doing the fetal breathing? Is it moving? Is it got good tone? Is how's its heart rate? Those things are fine. Leave it alone. But in a real, in a really good midwifery-based world, you, Keila, would never have had that ultrasound unless you have another reason to have had the ultrasound. But just, they, I'm sure they just did it because that's what they did. Yeah. Well, and like for me, I've, because I, I've heard this. Yeah. I went into the hospital um, to go get induced. And of course, they, you know, they give you Pitocin and they give you all the other stuff. And as soon as I got all that, I was in labor for two and a half days. Like, like then I got to the point where I was in like full labor where I was like, you know, as like close and as hard as the contractions could be. And eventually my doctor was like, okay, well, do you want to keep doing this or do you want to go ahead and take him? And I was like, well, I want to, I, I hadn't had epidural a day and a half in. And I was like, I want to like, see what my body does. Like, I want to see if I can do this. And then by the end of the second day, she was like, we need to go ahead and take him. Cause I don't want him to get in distress. And I was like, okay. But then my body was under so much stress at that point and with all the drugs and whatever, I was shaking so hard. I couldn't even hold my baby whenever he was born. It was so sad. I'm, I'm very sorry that this happened to you. And this happens to you and hundreds of thousands of other women in the United States every year. I mean, uh, just the whole cascade of interventions that happen to you happens all the time. And then, then a lot of times in the subsequent pregnancy, you're not offered a VBAC. And I don't know if you were or not. But She said you could try, but I wouldn't because <laughs> there's something wrong with your cervix. That's what she told me. Yeah, because she couldn't dilate past the four, I think it was. Yeah, but that's like common with Pitocin, right? Or the other things that they You, you weren't you. ready. Your uterus yeah. wasn't ready. <laughs> it, your baby wasn't ready. Wow. And again, like I said, I, I my heart is breaking when I hear your story. And this is what this is what my inbox is all day long, every day. Yeah. <laughs> people people writing with these sorts of stories and doctors saying these sorts of things to get you to do what they want you to do. Well, and over it's one called, third of women, oh, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I know that over one third of the women in the U.S. have C-sections and they're mostly just elective. And I don't know, I don't know what you think about that, but is there ever a reason really, I mean, for a C-section? Oh, sure. Okay. Ab absolutely. All right. The C-section in the United States in 1970, the C-section rate was 5% little over 5%. The C-section rate now in the United States is close to 32%. In some countries, it's a ridiculous number, like 70% in Armenia or South Africa or even Brazil. That's that. The, just anybody taking a step back saying, 
wow, seven out of 10 women can't have their baby as, na as nature designed or God designed. That, wow. is, that is crazy. So here's the, here's the question. The World Health Organization, which is an organization that I don't think you or I are very fond of. <laughs> Not um, at all. They, they state that the C-section rate in Western countries like ours should be between 10 and 15%. Okay, that's probably higher than it should be, but let's just, for argument's sake, say that it should be 15%. And this is a, ma a mathematical exercise I go through with my attendees at the, the conference, and usually some uh, jaws drop because they, they, people don't look at it this way. So let's say it's 15%. And let's say the C-section rate in the United States is 30%. You can see where I'm going with the math here. <clears throat> so if there's four, I mean, close to 4 million babies born in the United States every year, it's a little under, um, and say 30% are having C-sections, that means there's 1.2 million C-sections being done in the United States every year, by far the most common operation. Now, if the World Health Organization is, and we take their higher number and say that it's 15%, that means that half of all those C-sections being done are not necessary. Wow. So that's 600,000 unnecessary surgeries being done every year on pregnant women. If there were 600,000 unnecessary gallbladders or mastectomies or tonsillectomies, not only would the, would the population be enraged, but you know who else would be enraged? Insurance companies would be enraged because they're paying for unnecessary surgery. But yet when it happens to women, there's not a peep. So we have 600,000 unnecessary surgeries in the United States and no one's saying a word. But here's the really scary thing, and this is where cognitive dissonance comes in. Because if you're we're doing 600,000 unnecessary C-sections every year, ask yourself, who's doing them? Because no doctor goes home at night and says to their spouse, you know, hey, honey, I did two unnecessary C-sections today. So every doctor thinks that every C-section they do is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. How do, you, how do you explain that? Well, they don't ask the question, so they don't ever have to explain that. But somewhere along the line, Either you think that the that C-section should be at 30%, which means you're an idiot, all right, to be blunt, um, or there's a lot of unnecessary surgeries being done, but nobody admits to doing them. So this is a dilemma. And when you have, you know, a big monolithic thing like the uh, medical industrial complex, nobody's responsible. It's like in the government. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, the government yep. does something and, and they're, never, they're never held responsible for it when they're completely wrong sometimes. It's the last guy's fault. We're in the private sector. Yeah. You guys or I, if I do something wrong in the private sector, I'm held responsible for it. And I also feel guilty about it. Right. I feel bad about it. I saw some quote. Right. There's no shame. Yeah. No, I saw a quote on Instagram and it said that, um, that the government wants full surveillance of us into what we're doing on the, our day-to-day -day lives. And then we get held accountable if we do something wrong, but we have no surveillance into their lives and what they're doing wrong. And so it's just completely backwards. But I just wanted to maybe see if you could elaborate a little bit more on the unnecessary C-sections. Like what are the long-term effects of that on these kids? Okay. Well, um, that are being, that are, you know, being delivered via yeah, these cesarean. are these are general, these are, these are general things. They don't, they're not necessarily going to occur on all kids. And we don't know why, some things have a better penetrance than other things do. Why, why some people get sick from something and other people get the same disease and don't get sick from We don't really understand that. But first of all, nature has a beautiful design between the fetus and the mother that starts at the moment of conception and they're communicating back and forth through emotion and through hormones and probably other ways we don't even understand, maybe electromagnetic things or whatever. We don't really understand it. But there's a communication that's going on that's beautiful and wonderful 
the system is designed for the baby to decide at what point it's going to go into labor. Now, there's flaws in the system. And certainly, again, I'll, I'll say this one more time, maybe a couple more times about the caveat. This does not apply to all pregnant moms. And it doesn't mean that all doctors are bad. But we're talking about what's generally happening here. Um, when you start to interfere with Mother Nature, you have to prove that the intervention that you're doing is safe and effective. Those are famous terms now too, safe and effective. But you, the, the burden of proof lies on the intervention to prove that it's safe. And what we have in our, our model is what's called stage one thinking. We do things um, because they may sound good or feel good, like inducing all women at 39 weeks, with never asking ourselves the follow-up question, and then what? And then what happens when we do these things? Because no one looks downstream. They don't look downstream at what happens. So what happens to babies that are born by pre-labor cesarean sections? In other words, scheduled cesarean sections. Those babies are not ready to come out. So they don't get exposed to mom's oxytocin or any other hormones. They don't have to deal with the stress of labor, which may be a, a valuable thing for that baby to have to deal with for future immune system, future reflexes, who knows. But nature designed a system where babies have to struggle to get out of the vagina, right? That it's, and, and mom helps that struggle by hormones she's secreting and by movement she's making. And when a baby comes out before it's ready, it doesn't have the, those challenges. So it's missing something. And then often, of course, there's very, a lot of information about the microbiome and being colonized by the right bacteria. Babies come out relatively sterile. And the first things that colonize their skin and their gut and their respiratory tract need to be the right bacteria. Because if you start out with the wrong bacteria, it's like having a computer have a virus or wrong programming in it. It's never, it never quite works right. And it may, it may never be work right. So those babies are going to have more problems because their gut flora is abnormal. And gut flora helps to control your immune system. So we're seeing a rise everywhere in autoimmune disorders and problems in children. Now, there's a lot of other factors that can come into that play. We could talk about heavy metals and vaccines. We could talk about 5G. We could talk about glyphosate and GMO and all the other stuff. But it certainly correlates the, the rise of C-sections. So correlation is not causation, but it's certainly something that should be investigated. Are they being investigating it? Are they investigating it? No, they're not. So higher rates of childhood asthma, higher rates of um, adult onset diabetes. Allergies. Allergies, for sure all in those babies that are born by C-section. Now, is it really higher or is it? No, it's not really higher, but it, it is statistically higher. There's a relative risk that's greater. And so we can use the numbers either any way you want. But when you mess with mother nature, there's always going to be a downstream consequence. And sometimes, and that's the beauty of the midwifery model of care is because they're experts in normal birthing. They're very quick to recognize when something isn't normal. And so those are the patients that get transferred to a medical system that is that we definitely need, but we certainly don't need it to be doing what, what it's doing and all the damage it's doing. I mean, we got a third of women have postpartum depression and, and they're coming out with new medications for this rather than looking at why do a third of women have new medication? I mean, excuse me, <laughs> postpartum depression. <laughs> yeah. We know why, because there's no money in doing nothing. Exactly. There's no money in not giving a prescription. There's no money in, in not injecting somebody or not giving, putting them in therapy for the rest of their life. That's the, you know, and again, it sounds evil. And I don't think there's a little cabal of, you know, of men in a cigar, or women too, in a cigar-smoked room 
coming up with this idea, how can we screw the American public? But this is what's happening. And no one, no one in the, in the higher ups of the academia medical model seems to want to stop it. And, and big pharma just about owns everything. Yeah. Well, one of the most shocking things that I saw you say what, that I had no idea of was when someone gets an epidural, the baby can't communicate with the mom in those moments. And I never knew that. I like that made me feel very sad. So I was like, that's probably why babies get under distress because they can't talk to their mom back and forth, like a factor at least. Yeah. It's a, it's it, again, this is something that I don't know will ever be researched or, or even if you do, I don't know how you prove it, but it just makes sense. Uh, if your listeners don't know what you're talking about briefly, um, when a mom is in labor and all through pregnancy, but when she's in labor, she's, you know, she's uncomfortable. So the question I always ask is, why is labor painful? You'd think of evolution, believe in evolution, that the painful labors would evolve away because those, those mammals would have gotten eaten or more likely to get preyed on by a predator because they're making noises. And you know, even though mammals are very quiet when they're in labor out in the wild all by themselves, um, we still know that they're uncomfortable. They've done studies on them. They've drawn blood on them and they can see surges of epinephrine and things like that. So every time a woman has a surge or what they call a contraction it's that's uncomfortable for that for you you and, and by the way you're not allowed to, in a lot of ways in the hospital to move or do things that normal people do when they're when they're hurting so you're laying there so you eventually you ask for the epidural but before you get the epidural you're putting out adrenaline when you when you're in pain you put out adrenaline and adrenaline does many things but one of the things it does is it spaces out contractions a little bit so it gives your baby a little bit of a break and you're putting out cortisol which is your stress hormone you're probably putting out endorphins, which is your body's own opiates, pain relief things. And you're obviously putting out oxytocin in little pulsatile surges about every three minutes or so. And those things are all helping you cope with your, with your pain because the oxytocin makes you feel good, makes you feel loved, makes you feel like this is worthwhile because I love my baby and I really want the best for my baby and I'm feeling really good about it. So I'll, I'll wait for the next one and I'll deal with the next one the same way. And, but the, at the same time, your baby's world is changing. Your baby has been living in a bubble for nine months, and suddenly it's starting to get squeezed all the time. And eventually the bag of waters breaks, and then it's getting squeezed more, and then its head starts to come down, and it's getting squeezed more. And every three minutes, it's getting a signal from mom. This is a theory. It's getting your adrenaline, your cortisol, your opiates, and your oxytocin. And so it knows that mom's there. The adrenaline helps its, uh, it helps it deal with stuff. The opiates and cortisol help deal with stuff. The oxytocin tells it mom is still there. You know, I'm getting, I'm feeling this warmth and love feeling. And it deals with it, copes with it. Once you get an epidural and you're not in pain anymore, all those signals for you are cut off because you don't need them. But your baby's still going through contractions and even more likely stronger contractions because what happens after you get an epidural is often your contractions will space out and they'll start pitocin. Now there's no more oxytocin. It's just artificial pitocin, which is only similar to oxytocin in my mind in, by the fact that it makes the uterus contract. Oxy pitocin doesn't cause milk letdown. It doesn't cause you to feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't cause those things. So it's not the same. And then as you said, plus you're not eating. They don't allow you to eat much. No. That, that so was the big after one, yeah. you know, 10 hours, 20 yep. hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, you're running a marathon with no fuel you're numb, your baby's been disconnected from you. And of course, your baby starts to show signs on the monitor that your baby is not tolerating labor. They get this nebulous thing called a category two fetal heart rate tracing, which nobody really knows what it means. 
And they don't like it because it makes them uncomfortable. Remember what I said about what's high risk? It's not really a number. It's whatever makes them uncomfortable. They don't like the tracing. They don't put two and two together. They don't know that everything they just did caused this to happen. I mean, some of them do, but for the most part, they don't. And they say, um, we need to do a C-section because your baby's not tolerating labor. And you do a C-section, you get a baby that comes out that's crying, that's got APGARs of eight and nine. It's perfectly fine. And they say, wow, thank God you were here. Because <laughs> what, what would you have done if you'd been home and this had happened? Not realizing how stupid that is. Because at home, when you don't mess with Mother Nature, you rarely see this sort of rapid deterioration of fetal status that you see in the hospital. And how do I know this? Because I'm one of those unique people that have lived in both worlds. I was in the hospital world for 28 years, and I was in the home birth world for 12. And I can very clearly see the difference. And yeah, so well, and I think that's the you know that's an explanation of, of your your yeah. statement about the disconnect. It makes perfect sense if you if you try to stay away from being so medicalized and just think about this process. And that that's one of our passions because. Obviously, modern medicine has a place. You touched on that. But God designed our bodies in such a magnificent way to be able to do all the things that it's required to do. And I think that I love that you're hitting on this so that's why his stuff is called birthing instincts. Yeah, exactly. You have instincts. And you you're you're hitting on this stuff so intently of, you know, just just um allowing the body to to run its course or to essentially do what it's designed to do for the kids, so and the babies. Well, and I recently, I recently learned that out of all developed countries, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate, which is shocking. And when you start looking into all the reasons why, we don't have, like, I have a friend in Australia, she's, she calls herself a midwife, and I was always shocked by that because I was like, what do you mean you're a midwife? Aren't you a nurse at a hospital and you deliver yeah, babies? We don't, we don't really have And she's them. like, no, I'm a midwife. And she was telling me all the ways that, like, she has people labor where they have, like, tubs and balls and they bend and they do all this different stuff. And I'm like, that's insane. Like I've never even heard of that in America. We lay on our backs, which makes no sense if you think about it. And she was just telling me this. And if you look at the amount of people that we have available in our medical system for midwives, like it's staggering. Us in Canada have the least amount. And I don't know, like just looking at the numbers, I don't know what you think about that, but that was shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, Midwives can also become what we kind of humorously call medwives, and that's sort of what you, you, I think, what you were talking about. Because the problem is, is that midwifery education now is becoming more medicalized. It's not going the other way. It's going well. It's just like everything else in our world right now. Everything's going in the opposite direction of what sane people would do. So, I mean, we could we could go off and talk about just about every other aspect of our society right now, and it, they're they're doing what I what. The opposite of what normal, you know, what you and I, the three of us, would would probably think would be wise to do. But this is the thing: yes, we don't have enough midwives, but the medical model has control of everything. And when they have the control of the propaganda, and when they have the control of the purse, and when they have the control of the legislation, it's very difficult for midwives um, to break through, and for American women to understand that what they've been being told, like a lot of stuff throughout medical history, is either being wrong or they're being, is wrong or they're being gaslit to believe that it's, they get body shamed. Well, the reason you didn't do this is because you're overweight or, or the reason you did this is you didn't eat healthy or, or whatever. So, you know, the reason our C-section rate is so high is because, because women in the United States are so unhealthy. 
And I don't think that that's actually, that's actually true, but it's a nice, easy way of dealing with their cognitive dissonance because they can't admit that their model sucks. Can I say that on your podcast? Is that okay? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but because it does, it does, if you look at the outcomes, like you said, we're about 45th in the world in neonatal death. We should be, we spend more per capita in healthcare and obstetrical care than any other country. So that's, it's another great example of how money is not the answer. Uh, but that seems to be the administrative uh, response to anything is we didn't get, we don't have enough money. Like the teachers union and stuff like that. They go, they, they, it's only if we had more money would we have better outcomes, right? That's not the case. You take people who homeschool who don't have any money and their kids are much smarter. Right. <laughs> but they're not, but they're not going to look at that. Um, so, yeah. So we end up, we end up with a system that just says, uh, you know, do it our way. And we're going to, and we're not going to uh, make any changes. And it, it that's why it, it's, it's not going to come from within. It's not going to come from the medical model itself. And we're not suddenly going to have more midwives out there. There aren't more midwifery schools popping up. Um, somebody actually did the numbers one time. And if you took the 4 million births in the United States and you divided it by the number of midwives in the United States, um, at this time, every midwife would have to have 16,000 patients. Wow. <laughs> and, and that just doesn't work if you're only doing about four deliveries a month. It's a little hard to get 16,000 patients in there. So it's not going to work. We don't have enough people to change the system. But So what's going to happen is that pregnant women and um, uh, what we call them clients, we don't call them patients because they're not sick. These are, you know, we, use the, we try to use language like they do. I like that. So, you know, a patient is somebody that's sick. And when you go to the hospital, you're treated as a patient. You have to sign consent forms and you have to pee in a cup and change into a hospital gown. Why does a pregnant woman have to change into a hospital gown? I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> no, it's, well, it's a disempowering movement. It, it tells you that you are now a patient. Why can't you wear your own jammies or nothing if you don't want to wear anything? And, um, but they have these protocols. You have to have blood drawn. You have to have be monitored. You have to do – but you don't. But it's been done that way for so long. There's a famous Thomas Paine quote that says, the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And it first creates uh, a much tumult um, uh, in protest, but ultimately time makes more converse than reason. So slowly but surely, this will, this will go away. This system that they have in place cannot last. The problem is how much damage can be done and has been done yeah. Right before we finally wake up and realize that there's something that we need to do differently for the for the sake of our children and the future of the human race, for that matter. Yeah. Well, well you know, it's it's very interesting too. Just being like a woman in that perspective in a hospital, you feel like you can't, and I'm a question asker, but you feel like you can't even ask a question or have an opinion because this is what they're doing. Like this is. Um, outside of like my personal care. But like, I remember even in the hospital, the doctors that would come in and check me or check the baby. And I had my first baby during COVID in 2020, July, 2020. And it was honestly great because people wouldn't come in my room and they <laughs> yeah, would stay at true. the door and they would just like wave, you know, but whenever we had our second son in 2022, it was nonstop. And I remember like different doctors that would come in and see our baby. Like they would say like, have you done like the shots? Have you done all this stuff? And we're like, no, we're going to hold off on that. And we're going to do stuff with our like doctors later because we didn't want to have the discussions honestly and there's another like, business to yeah be honest. and they were like your baby will die if you don't do this and i was did, like what like did the, they, did they the actually types say of that? Things that yes the types of things that they were saying to us i was 
very, very upset. And there was just like, there was just different moments that I was like, this is such fear-based conversation. Instead of informing you, like teach me how to bathe my baby or like talk to me about basics. Like it was so fear-based and I did not like, like you're recovering. And I don't know how to explain that, but like, there's a lot going on in your body after you have your baby. And like this, even like the situations I had, the stress that my body was under, and it just was so fear. And I think so many parents get pigeonholed into stuff and so many women feel like they have to do things that doctors say in those moments. Because like, I remember after two days, I was like, I'm so hungry. I feel so weak. They're like, well, let's give you a pill so you can sleep. I was like, can you just let me eat? And they were like, well, if you, you, if you do that, you could asphyxiate. And I'm like, what? Like, you can't let me eat a snack? <laughs> you know, this is really interesting because basically in the, the, that, that two minutes of what you just said sums up the typical obstetrical uh, experience of, of so many women in our country. And almost none of that is true. What happens is it comes that the doctors are coming from a place of, of fear. Uh, you know, American women fear birth, but why is it that American women fear birth? Right? They fear birth because the doctors who take care of them project that fear onto them and into our society. And even in, in, even in people who are screenwriters who write movies and stuff like that, they make birth seem so scary and traumatic, except the, right. except the movies that are about birth when the, you know, they're more like documentaries and stuff like that. But this is, this is what our, our system does. It, it, it projects all this fear. And so everything that they told you there is really not true. It's, but how are you supposed to know that? These are the experts. These are the people that you hire. And that's all they know. And part of it is fear. And, and then a small part for a lot of these doctors is financial. I mean, this is going to be, this might be upset a few people listening, but there are so many examples of, of, of the way our system works that's, that is broken. And one of them is the fact that um, businesses took over healthcare. Right. Yep. And when businesses took over healthcare, their obligation is to make their business viable. It's not to the individual patient. When doctors were private in the days of, you won't remember this, but Marcus Welby or Dr. Kildare or Ben Casey, these TV shows where the doctors all knew their patients and, and like Dr. Welby would do brain surgery on one afternoon and then deliver the baby that night. And, you know, they were, they were doing everything. So it was, it was a time of, of doctors knowing their families and they'd get paid by uh, getting an apple pie. And, you know, this was, this was a very nice time. Dr. To, Quinn medicine woman. Yeah. Dr. Quinn, whatever those, they were, they were nice, nice situations, but then corporate medicine uh, began to take over and it became a business and doctors were paid a salary. And that was probably one of the most unethical things that ever happened because when, um, uh, as, as, a, as a solo physician, my fiduciary duty, my ethics is to taking care of the one woman that's in my care. When I'm being employed by an institution, my fiduciary duty is now conflicted. And now I, I want to provide care for this woman, but I also have a master. And that master is telling me that our hospital isn't going to allow VBAC. So now I have to counsel this woman that the VBAC is dangerous. I have to count, I have to skew my counseling to fall in line with what my masters are telling me I need to do. Because if I don't, and that woman shows up and says, oh no, Dr. Fishbein said I could have a VBAC, Dr. Fishbein will be in the administrator's office on Monday morning getting chewed out for for and, and you may lose your job, you may lose your bonus. Um, so you're not gonna do that. So that's another conflict. And then if you are in a group practice or whatever else. Your revenue is based on your your how many procedures you do, 
It's called coding. And they do a lot of what's called upcoding. Super coding. And yeah. so, so it, yeah, so they'll find reasons to do testing to generate increased revenue. And part of it is because doctors are paid very poorly for the global OB fee um, by insurance companies who seem to have the nicest buildings and the nicest private jets and all that other stuff. And CEOs are making $5 million a year um, or more. But the doctors are paid poorly by that. So in order for a doctor to make a living because of the way the model is, that he's got rent and he's got overhead and he's got malpractice insurance and he's got supplies, he's got all these things. There's a certain amount of money you need to make an hour to support your business. Well, you're not making enough an hour if you're getting paid $32 for an annual GYN visit unless you do eight of them in an hour. And if you do eight of them in an hour or if you do, if you do 10 OB visits in an hour, you can probably make enough money, but you can only give a woman six minutes uh, for her prenatal visit, where in the midwifery model, they get an hour. And you can't do preventative health and you can't do mental health and you can't make a woman feel happy and good in six minutes. It's very hard. There's a there's the Down to Birth podcast. We had them on one time and they, we were talking about red flags. And one of them that's, that's stuck with me ever since is, is when you leave your doctor's office, how do you feel? Do you feel better than when you came in or do you feel worse? And a lot of women leave the OB's office feeling like, well, what just happened? I didn't get to ask a single question. He just handed me some paper, some pamphlets and said, I'll see you in two weeks, that sort of thing. That's, that's not going to develop into a uh, system where, where th that functions well. And again, when you have money, like uh, one of the, my biggest pet peeves is what maternal fetal medicine doctors do. And I have lots of friends who are maternal fetal medicine doctors. And again, this is not picking on individual doctors, but the system is designed for that the more that they do, the more they make. And so when they do a 20-week ultrasound, this happens all the time, they'll find that the baby looks perfect, but there'll be one little thing like a dilated kidney or one little echo in the heart. And it doesn't mean anything in the, in the face of normal genetic testing early on, the thing called NIPT. And uh, a normal ultrasound. It doesn't mean anything. And they'll say that. They'll even say, God, your baby looks great, but there's this one little echogenic focus in the heart. So I want to see you back in six weeks just to make sure it's gone. All right. Well, so what is the woman thinking about for six weeks? She didn't hear the part about how your baby looks great. All she heard was there might be something wrong with my baby's heart. And so not only do they get to plant fear, but they use fear to direct them to come back for more revenue generation. It's a horrible, horrible system. In my practice, we didn't charge, the only ultrasound we charged for was a 20-week scan. Any other ultrasound was part of their package. But again, I, could, I didn't take insurance, so I could charge what a fair price would be for me to be able to make a living you know, and still pay my rent and my mortgage, that sort right. of thing. So, um, but, the, but that's where we're can at. Can you elaborate on the, can you, sorry, can you elaborate on the genetic testing? Because we did it for both of our boys. Is that something that's necessary or is that just another revenue generating activity for them? Well, it, it's, it, it's not necessary. Almost nothing is necessary. Um, seriously, it, nature's design does not necessarily need a lot of intervention. However, reassurance is, is a valuable thing. And if Sure. That's why we did it. Women are fearful that there's going to be something genetically wrong with my baby and then it has some value. Um, but again, I was one of those guys that did all that testing. I, in my early years, I did all my own amniocentesis. I was trained to do that. And, you know, um, and it, I generated revenue doing that. But when I think about, did I really need to do it because a woman was over 35? No, I didn't. So 
there are, there are tests that are necessary, but most of the time they're not. It's like anything else. It's like most doctors when and nurses go into healthcare because they really want to help somebody. And then they get beaten up in the system and they become sort of bullies. Now think about this for a second in general human nature. If you're happy, if you love your work, are you going to boss somebody around? Are you going to be a bully? Are you going to yell at somebody? Are you going to be mean to them? No. So what does this tell you about most people working in healthcare right now? They're not very happy. They may laugh and they may say, we have fun going to work and stuff. They may, but then you then treat people nicely. Right. Listen to, listen to the woman. Don't laugh at her birth plan. Right. You know, I still remember being at the nurse's station many times a woman would come in with a two page birth plan and we would all look at each other and we'd laugh and she's, oh, she's going to have an epidural and a C-section. You know, I mean, this is the, the snarkiness that, that we had at the, at the nursing station. Um, uh, because we were cynical because we were overworked and stressed and unhappy. If we weren't that way, we would have tried to endear ourselves with those, those families and give them what they wanted because giving birth is not like having your gallbladder out, but yet the medical model treats it the same. By the way, you know, the, the questionnaire you fill out when you come into the hospital for labor about, you know, family history, you know, how many stairs do you have in your house? Where did your grandmother die from? Do you have any tattoos or piercings? That, that's the same questionnaire that they give you if you're coming in with a gunshot wound, if you're still awake, or if, uh, to have your appendix out. It's the same questionnaire. There's no, they don't treat you any differently. They, they, you, to the hospital system, again, you are a patient. You put on a hospital gown. You're, you, have, you get ice chips if you're lucky. Um, you have to have an IV. Why, do, why does a laboring woman need an IV? You have to have blood drawn. Why does she have to have blood drawn? Well, what if it's like you said, just in case, or or what? One of my favorite terms is to err on the side of caution. Erring on the side of caution, if you actually break it down, means to make a mistake to be cautious, because that's what err on. The, but it sounds good. So why do they do all that stuff? Because if if that's necessary to give birth, then how come all the women at home don't have those things done and they still give birth? So good. Well, and for however thousands and thousands of whatever years women have been doing this with other women that learned how to do it. And I was just going to ask you, because you have a lot of resources. We always provide our audience with resources and I'll put like your website and like some of like the different things, but you, you co-publish a book called Fearless Pregnancy and you have a website called Birthing Instincts and you have a podcast. And so there's a lot of resources that you have out there for people, but if there was something that you could even tell our audience, whether they're men or women, but if you could tell our audience that is just kind of like a culmination of the lessons that you've learned, what would it be? That the body is really well designed, that God and nature have done a wonderful thing, and that your body, if, if it knows how to conceive, it knows how to grow a baby and it knows how to go into labor. And thank God for medicine for those rare cases where somebody develops a problem like growth restriction or hypertension. Right. But some of those things should be treated underlyingly by and we see lower rates of those in low-risk women. By low-risk women, I'm just taking about midwife populations of women. In a similar cohort in the, in the medical model, you're going to see less hypertension, less preeclampsia, less gestational diabetes. Why? Because the midwives are spending an hour with you each time talking about your lifestyle, talking about your diet, talking about all the things that we talked about before, like with the depression where let's just give a pill. Why not try to prevent the thing from happening in the first place? And the midwifery model tries to do that. So um, 
I would think that knowing that your body is capable of doing these things and finding a like-minded practitioner and don't just go to somebody because they've been doing your pap smear for 10 years and they're, and they're on your blue, blue shield card. Uh, they take your insurance because then you're, if you, then you're partially responsible for the, for the, <clears throat> for whatever comes because you have treated pregnancy like an illness. You wouldn't, you know, we have this analogy and, and again, I, I, I don't know what your audience has heard, but the two most important moments in a woman's life, generally, not, you know, not talking about a Nobel Prize or, you know, winning an Academy Award, but, but are, are giving birth to the children and their wedding day. I mean, these are the kind of things that tend to be memorable that you will think about when you're 80 years old with the grandchildren running around the house and that sort of thing. You'll think about those things because they were most valuable. And for your wedding day, you plan everything. You spend a lot of money. You pick out the color of the napkins, for God's sakes. You um, pick the flavor of the cake, and you and you pick the venue and the dresses, and and you invite people there that you'd like to have, that you love, that are warm and friendly, and you and you spend money on it, and you plan. And for your birth, most women don't think of it that way. They think of it as a medical event, and they have an insurance card. And um, I'm going to just turn this over to uh, the medical, uh, some a third party. But what if you had what if you had wedding insurance, and what if from the say you're 18 you start paying into it, and now you're 28 years old and you're getting married and and you have insurance to cover your wedding, but you don't get to pick the color of the napkins, and you don't get to pick what dress you have, and you don't get the chicken, you only get the fish, and you don't get the and you invite they invite people to your wedding that you don't like, um, you know, and you wanted a rabbi and you got a you got a justice of the peace. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> why, why would you, and no one would ever do that for their wedding. And yet for our birth, we just do it, turn it over. So the idea of the best thing I can tell people is start to think of pregnancy different than you have and that your, your, your ancestors have before you and go back to an idea that birth is a normal function. You know, it's frightening. There, there are some wonderful um, documentaries out there on, on birthing, um, some beautiful ones, and then some some informative ones like Business of Being Born. But when I see these births at home with the generational people around them, mom is there, grandma might be, even be there, and the other siblings are there, and they watch mom give birth in the living room in a tub, then, then birth to them is not going to be scary in the future. They're going to know more than most of the medical personnel that are going to be advising them in the future. And we have sterilized birth. Most people go through life never seeing a baby born, which is really odd because we're all born. And most people go through life on the other side never seeing a person die. People die usually in a hospital or in a nursing home, often alone. They don't die in the home. There was a documentary I saw once. It's not the greatest documentary, but it really struck home with me. It's called um, uh, A Fit. Oh, shoot. I forgot what it's called. But, uh, oh, a family under, a, a family under, it's, it's called a family undertaking. Yeah, we'll put it in the resource. <laughs> and it's about grandma dying at home and all the kids coming in to say goodbye and I, I get choked up. But um, yeah, we've just, we've, we've taken life and death out of our birth and death out of our world. And, and by when you, you always fear what, to quote Batman movie, what you always fear, what you don't understand. And fear is the greatest motivator of anything. You can get people to do anything if you scare them enough, as we've seen 
um, in plain in plain sight the last few years. But we've seen some uh, people are still living there. Yeah. Oh yeah, there, there's a certain percentage of the population that are never going to wake up. They still can't wake no, up for their I, their shots. Yep, I've said that even They're when bad. I see people with masks on, I'm like, I, I told people during that, I was like, there's going to be people that will wear masks for the rest of their life, and they do. I, I travel a lot, and I never used to see somebody with a mask on. Maybe every now and then you'd see an Asian family with masks on because I think that 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 was their culture and that's what they did. But now you see young, healthy people wearing a mask, and you know, you just well, but they wore them. They wore them when they are sick to keep other people from getting sick. Yeah. Which it's like, okay. And just the close proximity, yeah. you know, the pop, sheer population number, they're so close. So they, you know. Yeah, I, I think, but again, they, they should know that obviously the studies show that masks don't really do anything for viral, par- right. but for viral yeah, particles. Exactly. So not even N95s, but, but um, yeah, I, there's, there, we can't save everyone. Right. But by spreading information like this, I mean, and I could go on, <laughs> we, we could talk for a lot longer if you want. Um, I could go on and uh, to, to share this information is really valuable to I me. Mean, this is sort of my life's work at this point. And because I do this stuff, like any anybody else out there, I get called all kinds of names. I get trolled all the time. Uh, what does he know? He's a man. Oh, he's an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, proudly. All right. Um, right. That, that's what why I, is that a negative? That's I what understand. I say to her. I'm like, when people say that about us, I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the question is, why aren't you? And the reason they're right. not is because they haven't ever read a book. They haven't looked right, into yeah, it at done all. Recent, yeah, yeah. One, that's our goal is like to get people to just start like thinking. Like, if you're in a developed country and you have vitamins and you have access to certain things, like there, from what I understand from at least my research, there is so much in our world that is fear based that people just do it because doctors say or because a medical professional says, and they don't ever go. Well, is there a different way? And what? And they just think, well, back in the day, you know, in ancient times, all these people were dying because of this. And it's like, well, they didn't have sanitation and they didn't have access to basic things that we do, like taking a bath, you know, not having sewage run through their streets. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm on the road a lot. I go through airports and stuff like that. And sometimes I'm driving and I stop to get gas and I go into the gas station and I'm looking at snacks. And you look at the snacks in a gas station and stuff like that. I don't think there's one thing in there that's really edible. Um, that isn't filled with things that are toxic for you. So when I travel now, um, when I drive, I usually take a cooler and I'll take fresh raspberries and I'll take some cheese and I'll take some things in there that I can snack on so I don't have to stop and get a bag of Doritos and and uh, some sort of candy or something just to tide me over. And Red dye 40. Yeah, wh- yeah. whatever. It's got so much stuff in it and it's so bad for us. You know, I was just in um, England. And we were, I went out with some friends that I was staying with on a long boat in England. And that was, it's called a narrow boat, excuse me. And it was a blast. They, they were on a canal and we were on a narrow boat. And, and I taught my breach thing for two days back in, this, in town. We had to drive an hour into town every day. And, and one night we went out for um, fish and chips and mushy peas, by the way, which are really good. I like, I like mushy peas. And, uh, you know, I was put, getting some ketchup to put on my chips which in for those of us in America means French fries. Right. (laughs) They call call them chips. Um, And I look at the label on the the ketchup, and it's Heinz ketchup, same ketchup, and it's got tomato, tomato paste, and salt in it. It doesn't taste the same. All right? American ketchup tastes better, but why does it taste better? Because it's got hydrogenated corn syrup in it and some other stuff in it. Sugar. Sugar in it. Right. Which they don't have, and they won't sell our products 
in uh, in Europe. And yet here, you know, people buy stuff because it's cheaper, it's easier. Uh, I'm feeling healthier because I've I've cut out Coca Cola, um, almost completely. Not completely. Can't cut it out when I go to the movies. I gotta have a Coke. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also I'm yeah, also trying to I'm person. trying to eat more organic. I'm buying my meat from a from a free range meat person. I I don't I don't know a rancher, but um, uh, I listened to a guy named AJ Richards on the uh, Spillover podcast with Alex Clark and. Um, Made it sound like if you have access to the ability to go and find local farmers to buy your meat from a local farmer, you can tell where how it's grown. It's not they're not shot up full of antibiotics and eating feed that has glyphosate in it and other things like that. Um, it's very good. It's very not easy to do when you're in a lower socioeconomic status and you've got to raising a bunch of kids. It's you know, but but these are things that are important because I think the biggest problem we have in our country right now, well, among many. Is is the toxins that we that we ingest and that are affecting us? Absolutely, and yeah. mainly the heavy. I, I've just been, I've taken a deep dive recently into heavy metals, and the idea that that the American College of OBGYN thinks that it's okay to give six vaccines to a pregnant woman uh, violates everything about the precautionary principle because none of those vaccines were ever tested for safety in anybody in a randomized placebo-controlled trial, let alone in pregnant women, exactly. and none of them were ever tested to giving five of them at the same time. At the 28-week visit, many pregnant women are getting shot up with um, COVID vaccine, flu vaccine, and DTaP vaccine, which has three different uh, antigens in it. And the DTaP vaccine has somewhere close to 400 micrograms of aluminum in it. The safe level of aluminum for a, for a newborn baby, according to Brian Hooker, who, who's an author of the book Vax Unvax with Robert Kennedy Jr., is um, 17 micrograms. Now, I don't know how we came up with that number because I would think there's probably no safe level of aluminum. But a Tdap shot has 400 micrograms in it. And the Hep B shot that they want to give your baby, which you refused and were probably going to kill your baby because you didn't give the baby the hepatitis B vaccine, um, has 250 micrograms. And you're giving that to this innocent little thing that's been alive for an hour. And you're injecting it with vitamin K and you're injecting it with um, hepatitis vaccine and, some, and you're putting an antibiotic in their eyes. For what reason? You don't have sexually transmitted diseases. Completely unnecessary. Exactly. Yeah, say, she says this all the time. Yeah. No, it's unnecessary. But they, but to them, it's one size fits right. all. And by the way, again, this is cynical, but it's true. There's no, you can't charge for not doing something. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I know even for me as the husband with our second, because again, like she mentioned earlier with our first during COVID, there really wasn't a lot of interaction. But the second time around, I mean, it genuinely felt like they were in and out of our room every 45 minutes. And I finally said, you know, because they walk in, they're like, hey, we just want to check on mom, make sure she's doing okay. And I'm like, yeah, my wife will be doing good when she can rest, when you aren't coming in and out of here every 45 minutes. She can't rest. And so you're sitting here asking that question while simultaneously coming in and out of our room every 45 minutes. I didn't just deliver a baby and I'm tired of you coming in and out of my room. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The 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 reason that they're doing that is not because they they want to pester you. The reason they're doing that is because the hospital puts protocols in place. Exactly. That yep. say, you know, in the first 24 hours postpartum, you need to check on the vital signs every hour or every whatever. And there's there's no data behind that. There's no individualization of care. Everything is on an algorithm. And so you know, if you had a normal delivery, 
at the hospital, that doesn't matter if you had if you had a C-section or you know had to get a transfusion. You're sort of on the same postpartum algorithm, right? And they need to wake you up. And 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 again, the idea that a woman is soundly asleep and that and the doctor's coming in around seven thirty in the morning to make rounds, so we have to draw your your blood at four a.m. We have to wake you up at four a.m. to be convenient for the doctor. And by the way, you probably don't need that blood test in the first place. I I have a an anecdotal story of when I was chief resident. There was a standing order on labor and delivery postpartum uh, that every woman on their first postpartum day got a CBC, which is a complete blood count. It's a blood draw, and when and I never saw the sense in that. And when I became chief, I canceled that order. Um, the first time we were making rounds with the attending, he asked my intern about this patient. And he says, "So what's your hemoglobin?" And he says, "Well, I don't know." And the attending is all taken aback because how could he not know? And he says, well, why don't you know? He says, well, we didn't draw one. And then he's looking more astounded. And of course, this is a composite memory, by the way. This isn't like a specific memory. Um, and by this point, the, the intern's getting very sheepish. And he looks at me because I'm the chief. And I said, because she doesn't need one. She's ambulatory. She's not tachycardic. She's alert. She's making urine. Why do I care if her hemoglobin is 7 or 8 or 9 or 10? I'm going to send her home on vitamins and iron and she's functional. So why am I sticking a needle in her arm that can, that that's painful. And she probably would be woken up at four in the morning to do it. And that you can bill 80 at that point, it was $87. The hospital charges $87 for that. So I'm sure it's a lot more now, but that's what they charge for a CBC. And it was like, it doesn't matter. And I had a really wise laboratory medicine professor in medical school. I can remember his face, but I can't remember his name. It's too bad. It's like, that will happen to all of us at some point in, down the in the distant future. Um, but he used to say, don't draw a lab test unless the result's going to change your management. And yet the hospital draws these things and, and orders these things because just in case. <laughs> and that is not, I never read in a textbook that just in case is a reason to be doing invasive procedures on people and drawing blood on somebody is an invasive procedure. I don't like it. You probably don't like it either. Um, but that's what they do. So, um, they, they're constantly waking you up, uh, knocking on your door and doing things that you don't need to. That's one of the reasons why home birth is so, so valuable. And they're like, Hey, don't hold your baby. And accidentally, I mean, I get their thought process, but it's like, they watch you on the cameras, you know, in your room and they're like, don't hold your baby and be tired because then you could like drop your baby or whatever. But then they're controlling like when you hold your baby and when you put down your baby, it's like was really weird to us because we didn't send our baby to the NICU. There's just a lot of reasons for that. Nope. Um, <laughs> I, I made sure. Yeah, I, I kept my eyes on, on yeah. our babies both times. They never left the room. But I just, you know, it's yeah, well, like, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I want you to finish. I'm sorry. There's just this little saying, delay. So I, I was just saying like, it's, it's really sad to me because, you know, you're sitting there holding your baby. I get it. There's women that there's accidents happen. Maybe they, they drop their baby off the bed. I don't really know. But it's like, if I'm sitting there as a new mom and I want to sit there and hold my baby and it's soothing to me. So I close my eyes for a second. Cause it's just what it makes you feel, you know? And it's like, then they're like, they come in, they rush in your room. They're like, you need to put your baby down in the bassinet. Like, whoa. Like, it's just so controlled. Yeah. 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 This is what they're taught. But here's a question for me. You said something that, that baffles me. You said they have cameras in the room? Yes. They have cameras what the, in the rooms in Texas. What the? You they know what? They have cameras where they're watching you the whole time, and they can talk through the speaker to you. So mm -hmm. there's never a moment where you're alone or you're doing whatever. 
That, like, that is it's, so it's 1984. That is so scary to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> that the walls are talking yeah. to you and telling you you're doing something wrong. Yeah. That that's that's an incredible yeah. thing that you just told me. I yeah, this is a doctor-owned hospital. I don't, you know, I, I obviously they, it's for liability purposes, but certainly it's, it, it, you know, and I probably you probably to go there, you probably have to consent to having the camera in the room. But the idea that they need cameras in the rooms now is is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, there's. I feel like there's just so much that you know. I. I wish I would have known of you. I wish I could have learned from you earlier. And that's why I wanted to share you with our audience because there's so much that you say that I'm like, yes, that's so true, man. Like as a mom, like there's so much that feels wrong when you're in environments like that, whether it's like you're going to see your OBGYN and it just feels sterile and and controlled and fear-based and so fast, you know, there's no relationship. There's no getting to know you at all. And then it's like you go into the hospital. It does feel like a procedure. It does feel like You're a these, patient. this is what you have to do. Check it off the list. Go to the next thing. And it just doesn't feel like it changes the experience, you mm -hmm. know, and it changes like you have to focus on what's most important in, the, in those moments because there's so many negatives for me, at least there were. And I just wish I could redo some of that, but I can't now. But I hope that if, again, if more women knew about how mammals give birth and when they when they don't, it's a very simple thing. When a mammal is ready to go go into labor, she goes off to a quiet place and she goes off by herself. The other cows don't go with her, right? The other zebras don't go with her. They 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 hold sacred space for that that animal that's going into labor. We are no we are mammals. We're just like that. And and when she's hungry, she does this amazing thing. She eats, and when she's thirsty, she drinks. All right. And if she's uncomfortable, she moves because movement is how we deal generally with aches and pains. If you're uncomfortable, if you're if you have back pain, you and you can't move, of course you're going to eventually clamor for fentanyl or an epidural. Right? But if you can move and if you can have get your hips squeezed by your partner or by your doula, you can get rebozoed, which is a little cloth that they use to shimmy your hips a little bit, or if you can squat or kneel or bend or rock on a ball or get in the shower or get in a bath, then, then you don't need these interventions. And all mammals, obviously, they don't get in the shower or the bath. But, but if you ever watched a mammal in labor, sometimes they'll lie down and sometimes they'll get up and they'll pace and then they'll lie down again or they'll change positions because they're, they're, in that way, they're helping their baby travel through the birth canal and through their pelvis. And when they're ready to give birth, where do they go? They don't get moved to another room. <laughs> they, they, they stay where they are. The baby comes out in the, in the straw. It's not a sterile procedure. In the grass, in the straw, on the carpet, <laughs> wherever they happen to be, um, the babies come out and the, no one cuts the cord. Those babies don't bleed to death when their cords separate. And I'm not saying that we should not cut, you know, clamp the cord, but I can tell you if you let the cord pulsate till it stops and turns white and flaccid, if you cut that cord, they're not going to bleed from that other than maybe a little bit of oozing. But we have to put clamps on them and all that stuff. That's okay. Well, you know, my doctor, I asked her just really quick. I'll just say this. I asked her both times, can you do delayed cord clamping? And she was like, no, not with a C-section. And I was like, why? Like they would not do it. And so they, I said, can you just please do it as long as you can? I don't want like, I want the blood to be able to come back into my baby's body and then you clamp it and then you cut it. I don't want it. Just cut, take them away, you know? And she wouldn't do it. Right. Right. But she didn't answer the why question, did she? 
Yeah, no. No, she didn't, right? <clears throat> because there is no reason. They'll say, well, you know, you you have an open wound here and you're bleeding pretty heavily and stuff like that. Yeah, but you could you could you could let the baby sit there for a couple of minutes and just get get its stem cells back and stuff like that. And then when the baby, the other thing that never happens is the baby is never separated from its mother in nature. Nobody comes in and takes the baby to the nursery. I mean, I, I lovingly joke that, you know, try taking a newborn chimpanzee away from its mother and see what happens to you. That's how I feel. Right. Well, that, you know, women need to feel that way, but, but the, the, the system turns you into, you know, uh, mush rather than, you know, a lion. That's right. Uh, you should, mothers should be a lion. They should be protecting their children and, and the nature the very nature of the design of our hormones and our bodies is to do those things. And when those things get undermined, you can see why it leads to things like feelings of inadequacy and postpartum depression and things like that. And when, and in the mammalian model, one other thing that's really important is when a mammal's in labor and little kids run into the, into the closet or, or a predator approaches or whatever else, what does the mammal do? The mammal puts out hormones like adrenaline, which slow down the labor and allows the mammal's body to do the things it needs to do to, to, to save itself and its offspring. So it gets into fight or flight mode, but it's obviously not going to fight. It's going to, fl- it's going to flee. And only when uh, things are calm again, will nature allow the mammal to go back into labor and this way ensures the best chance of survival. So when we take a woman who is starting to labor at home and we tell her way too early that the doctor says, oh, once they're five minutes apart for two hours, you should come to the hospital. Well, some labors are 20 hours or 15 hours. And so you're coming to the hospital like 14 hours too early. But they tell you to do that. Or if you break your bag of water, you should come to the hospital immediately. Dumbest thing ever. The thing to do in that situation. That's what they say. Yeah. The situation that is to, is to call your, find, first of all, find a like-minded practitioner. But call them and just say, listen, I think my water broke. And they're going to ask you a couple of questions. Like, is the fluid clear? Is there any blood? Is baby moving? Okay, fine. Go back to bed. That's what that's what you tell them, um, but they're going to tell you to. Well, come. It's like you said, that's what they show in the movies. Every time the water breaks in movies, they're all rushing out the door to the hospital. Yeah, yep. yeah. It's not. It's because that's all they know. But it's wrong because it's antithetical to mammalian the mammalian model. You you get in the car to drive from the moment you get in your car to drive the baby to the drive to the hospital to the moment you put your baby in the car seat to drive home. Pretty much everything that's done to you is antithetical to nature's design, and almost none of it is for the benefit of the woman and her baby. It's really all done for the benefit of the hospital. Now, people are going to take, you know, exception to that, but I'm not, you know, again, we're not talking about the people that really need to be there. Talking about the 80% of women who really don't have a problem other than the obstetric model, which is their problem. And, you know, because we don't see that C-section rate in the home birth model. We don't see the 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 outcomes, the, the perineal lacerations and tears as much in the home birth model. We don't. We That's see. That's another fear thing. The tears. Yeah, tell me about it. That's been told. They're like, they're like, you're gonna tear if you don't do this, and I'm gonna cut you so you don't tear. Like, there's so many other ways around that. Yeah, well, these are the things that I learned as a resident back in the nineteen early 1980s, and they're still doing them now. There's so much evidence out there, but they don't, you know, they don't read that stuff. Or they don't care because this is the model which our group practices. And a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on physicians and OBs to conform because it's the nonconformists, like the Japanese proverb of what do you do with a nail that stands out as you pound it back in again? The nonconformist gets, gets yelled at either by the hospital or even by his own partners. Like I, 
you know, in, in back when I was in LA, we had a, a group where one of the guys wanted to back midwives and he would w- willing to take their transports. And his partner said, no, you can't do that. And so he couldn't do it because his survival was based on the fact that he's got associates and, and they cover him and he's got a lifestyle and, you know, that's like their family. So sometimes you do things for family that you don't think is necessarily right, but you do it because it's your family and that's what they do. So the, if, if you're in a situation where somebody wants to help you, but their employer won't let them help you, this is awful. And, and, and it's not, it's not right. And that's why the system will not survive because I think women are waking up. Yes. I think all the things that's happened in the last decade or two, you know, you could go back five, six, seven decades and I could rattle off things that the obstetrical world did that were really stupid, you know, from um, heavy metals to thalidomide to diethylstilbestrol, you know, to, to now vaccinating women in pregnancy to uh, inducing them at 39 weeks, to sectioning all breaches. Um, these things are all wrong. They're not even, there's not even a, I, again, people can say, well, that's one choice and it's another choice. And I, I want to be more hyperbolic than that because I don't want to be uh, too polite because what they're doing doesn't deserve politeness because the damage that they've done is, and to me, it's unthinkable. And I understood it and I came out and I was the person doing damage. But I opened my eyes up and I was receptive to the idea that, you know, this doesn't make sense. Just stop and think about it. Why does a baby need to go to the warmer after it's born? It needs to go on the mom. Well, we have to check the baby out. Well, why do you have to check the baby out? Well, because the baby might have a problem, but this baby isn't having a problem. So leave the cord attached, put the baby on mom's chest. And if you want to listen to the baby's lungs, listen to it on the ba- on mom's chest. And leave it alone. Don't don't keep rubbing it with a towel. Don't uh, don't inject stuff into its eye. Don't put stuff in its eyes. Yeah, well, that is a whole. It's not going to it's not going to die from uh, from gonorrhea in the next five minutes. Okay. Right. No. And especially okay, you didn't have a vaginal birth. What? Like, and you don't have an STD. What? Like, there's there's a lot there in my brain. Yeah, make that. it make sense. The math isn't mathing. Well, and <laughs> and I would just say too, like, I think hopefully because I'm a millennial, I hope a lot of my generation, because they're in their like 40s and late 20s now, I hope that a lot of my friends, even that I've seen this, they're, they have maybe their first birth in a hospital, but then they start going, this doesn't feel right. And I hope that people start listening to that feeling of like, if something seems like it's off, you should listen to that and ask questions. You should wait for a second and go, is there a different way? And it might cost me more like up front, but the cost after is going to be way less. Because there's so many things down the trajectory of the choices that you make because you think, well, this is safer, or this is easier, or this is what people do. But the end result is actually could be worse off for you and your inner child. And I think too, a lot of people are scared of the backlash, you know, the, the peer Being pressure weird. of, yeah, this whole stigma around natural stuff and how weird you are if you do that, like how you have, you give birth in your home. And I, I think that's one of our goals is hopefully erasing that stigma and trying to normalize what actually is the normal way and actually bringing light to the way that we've been taught and conditioned and programmed to think is the natural way is not the natural way. And showing that people like you that have been in both worlds that you can see, okay, there's benefits to this side, but then the benefits on this side outweigh some of the benefits on that side. And that might be necessary to go on the medical side, but the natural side is really how God intended it, you know? And I, I think that 
it's just a very interesting perspective that you have and I really respect it. And I respect that you own, like even what you said about, I was the the person that maybe did some harm in this scenario or whatever you, however you said that, but like that takes a lot because so many doctors that I even know, they will not admit that mm -hmm. and they would not say that. And it shows that you are a person who seeks the truth because you're, you've gone down the path and you've owned it. And so I just, I really respect that about you and thank you for yes. being real like that. Yes. Well, th thanks guys. And you know, it's a really interesting thing because, um, I, I do what I do because I truly believe that it makes sense to me and I've seen results. And if the results in the hospital setting were good, you could maybe argue that all these interventions have some value, but our results, as you said earlier, were, 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 close to dead last in, in Western countries in maternal morbidity and, and neonatal mortality and that sort of thing. So our results are not good. And we have, we have a 500% increase in the cesarean section rate over the last 50 years with no decrease in the rate of cerebral palsy or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is the whole point of this. And I, and I go through, there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, most of that is based on what's called stage one thinking where they institute policies that they think will do good without ever actually testing them to see if they'll do good. Uh, sort of like what we just went through. Um, let's just inject experimental vaccine into people without ever testing it. And we'll have eight billion, we'll have 3 billion guinea pigs and we'll see what happens. Oh, exactly. The, re the results yeah. are terrible, but let's just keep giving it anyway. So it doesn't even matter. But I do know that there's, there are increases in mis miscarriages, stillbirths, uh, there are some increases in maternal death. I saw an article that had the number 429 in it, and that was like, which is interesting because it's- Yeah, that was the the first one, yeah. Yeah, um, they were talking about that. But but clearly, all-cause mortality is up in all age groups. Right, yeah. Yep. Which, and it wasn't up in 2020 when the COVID was rampant. It only started in 2021 when the vaccine came out. And and all these, these great uh, epidemiologists that worked for the FDA and CDC- they can't quite figure it out. Jeez, why are all these people, uh, why are we having 16-year-olds drop dead on the playing pitch? And why are we having, you know, 30-year-olds drop dead uh, on their newscast? And and that, that's what I was going to say. It's like they're, they're trying to normalize that. I remember watching uh, an NFL game last year when the player from the Buffalo Bills oh, DeMar Hamlin, uh, yeah. collapsed. Yeah, DeMar Hamlin. They, they, they tried to, nor they're still normalizing this. Like as if he just went into cardiac arrest. I mean, it's insane. Like, don't allow what your eyes are seeing to be, you know, again, reprogrammed based on whatever messaging or narrative that they want. Your eyes are telling you the truth. What you're seeing is not normal. It is not normal for a 25-year-old healthy professional athlete. These guys are at the peak level of health, dropping dead on a football field. I played sports my whole life. I never once saw a player pass away on a field or just collapse like that. Yeah, in my in my whole uh, in my whole life, I have memories of two very famous athletes. One was Hank Gathers; he was a basketball player at the Loyola Marymount. Mm -hmm. He dropped out of the yep. court, and the other was Lenny Bias, who played for the Celtics. And he, but that's in like fifty-five or sixty years of my life. I remember maybe two people right. dropping dead. Um, and now it's I know it happens. I just meant that it's yeah. the rate that it's happening, and the idea that you don't don't trust your lying eyes. Um, I mean, who are you going to trust, me or your lying eyes? Um, what Keila said earlier was about gaslight. She described, uh -huh. you know, people being told that the, you know that this isn't right. It's it's gaslighting is huge, and we're all being gaslit. Uh, why people go along with it, I don't know. And I'm not talking about people that are on the end on the receiving end of it. 
but why the media and the press what's in it for them i mean can can it really be that they're being sponsored by big pharma and so they're they're, they're going to let these people have to go home and they have to answer to their children. Do they, they want their children doing, I just don't understand the psychology right. of even my OB uh, colleagues who, who think that it's okay to section one out of every three women who think that inducing women at 39 weeks makes sense. Um, as a, as a general rule, you know, who, 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 th- yeah, those sorts of things, they just don't, they don't compute for me. And I can't really understand why. And I've asked people about it. I some of my old associates in my office, they're they're still vaccinating pregnant women with COVID vaccine in the old office I used to work at before I I moved to Utah. And and I, you know I there's nothing I can say. I don't know what I, what do you say to these people? They're not dumb. There's some really really bright people, and I, obviously my my whole family. There's a lot of bright people in my family, and pretty much everyone in my family got vaccinated. And pretty much no one in my family's had a home birth. And they all know what I do. <laughs> so I, I'd love to have well, better influence on your audience than I have had on my own family. That's for you sure. Know, the, the people that are going to hear from you are going to be influenced. And, you know, there is something in the Bible that we know that talks about that. But, you know, a prophet, it basically is like a prophet is not respected in his own home, basically, you know. And sometimes you can see something that, other people can't see and people don't always believe it if you're in close proximity to them because they know you and they know your flaws and they know all the things instead of respecting the journey. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I want to do even for our audience is I'll put on a resource, like some of the stuff that you've been publishing and um, the book that you co-authored and some of the other things that they can get as resources. And I'll put like, even if you have any graphs or studies, I'll put some of that in there so they can visualize it. Um, but we've loved having you and yeah. Is there, is just... there anything else that we missed that you would like to plug on the episode that, oh, that people can? No, I mean, I would have loved to at some point to talk a little bit, to reassure people more about breaches and twins and things like that. But I would say on well, my, we can do that and we can make this a part two episode. Yes. Well, we, we would love to have you back on, have so. me back on, but because I have a lot to say about breaches and twins, but I will say on my website, on the homepage, if you scroll down, there is, um, Three papers that I published. One is on home birth with an obstetrician. It's a series of well, the first 135 home births that I had. And the second one is on uh, breach home birthing and comparing breach va- home vaginal delivery to head down home vaginal delivery. The problem with most papers with breach is they compare it to cesarean for breach. And that's not a fair comparison because cesarean is a well-codified procedure that everyone does around 39 weeks. And and breach babies vaginally, are there's so many variabilities. like what were the criteria used to select them? How many weeks were they? What was the skill of the practitioner that was with them? So the real true uh, analysis of breach safety should be done against head down safety. And I said, I said earlier, it's like like one extra death in every thousand breach births um, over a head down. And nobody's suggesting we should section all head down babies. So again, the, the, these numbers are crazy. And then I did a, I have a case report and then a colleague of mine have a paper coming out on a twin home birthing. And it's at, it's at, we've submitted it for publication. It's going, going through peer review. It's a process, a long drawn out process. Yeah. And there, there's, so again, talk about gaslighting. There's so much gaslighting with twins. And you know what? Gaslighting implies that the person that's giving the information knows it's false. Right. And I'm not, and I'm not so sure that maybe gaslighting is the term because I don't know that my colleagues know that this information. They learn something in residency and they haven't ever dug it, dug deeper after. To find out what they that what they learned was actually meaningful and truthful, 
They just, they do it. And it's, by the way, it's so expedient to schedule a C-section at 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday and be out by 8.15 and back in your office by 9 than it is to have to spend 10, 12 hours in labor with a breach or a twin mama because some hospitals are so fearful of that that they say, well, if you're going to do that here, Dr. Stu, then you have to be here the whole time. And you don't get paid more to be there for 12 hours than you do for 45 minutes. So why would most doctors do it? So all the forces are against it. So that's the website. Uh, we are we we also have our podcast, and we have a podcast that it's called Birthing Instincts, and you can find it on your podcast app. And we have um, a website for the podcast called birthinginstinctspodcast.com. And on there, and also on the link tree on my Instagram at Birthing Instincts, you can find a link to our Patreon, which we're doing. We're we're starting to try to develop a community like you guys are doing, to uh, to be able to have conversations uh, more in depth than we can possibly do by answering direct messages or answering emails, which I do every day. So, you know, it's a small fee per month and you join in and we're going to have extra content and we're going to do question Q and A's live. And we do webinars once, a, once every couple of months. We, the last one we did was called bringing the home birth hesitant on board. And it was just a two hours. It was an hour and a half podcast where bliss and I talked for a little bit. Bliss is my co-host. And then, and then we just took questions from people that were on the, um, on the zoom meeting. And so we want to, because we want to bring this information as much as possible. And then if anybody's interested, I do, I do travel the country and teach. And even if you don't want to take the course, if I happen to be in your city or something like that, you want to come by and share a story or say hello, I would love that. Because I will, the last thing I'll say is the best way to learn new stuff is not statistics. It's not reading papers. It's not going to seminars. It's telling stories. Uh, stories you remember. You don't remember necessarily statistics uh, or, or, or a paper that you read, or you don't even remember the author of the paper or what year it was. People ask me all the time, can you give me a reference for this? It's like, yeah, it's, it's in here somewhere, but I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember where it is. I'm just remembering the stories that, that, this, that, I, that were told from that. And so that so that's how people can reach me. And I want to continue to do this, and I, I would love to have open and honest debate with people who think otherwise with physicians who think otherwise, but it just, you, that will never happen. You know, one last thing, if I, if I may, if early in the pandemic, president Trump or later president Biden would have said, you know, Fauci and Deborah Burks. Okay. We're going to, I'm, I'm getting two hours of primetime television and we're going to put you on a stage with Peter McCullough and Jay Bhattacharya and whatever. And you're going to have a conversation about this. So the American people can actually, Decide for themselves what makes sense. You know, the great Barrington Declaration people and have them on. Uh, that's never done because the people in power never want to be challenged. In fact, the opposite happened. What they did was they tried to, tried to uh, shadow ban or shut these people up or ban them from social media or, de or, de or delicense them or take away their board certification or whatever else. And all they did was speak truth. Right. And even recently, Fauci came out and said that um, there was no science to back up the six foot social distancing. It just kind of appeared. That's what he said. It's like these people, man. It, people don't remember the AIDS epidemic and his involvement. <laughs> you know, they just don't. So I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, they, they don't. And, the, and these people, again, these people are what you'd have to call sociopaths. They have to be sociopaths by very definition is that well, they feel no you, shame. How do the people that want to depopulate the earth also want to save you? That doesn't make sense. Good question. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. Good question. But, 
Yeah, and we we would genuinely love to have you back on, and we'll do that. We'll do a part two where we can talk about the twins because I think that'll be very powerful. Because my our, mom's a twin. Yeah, <laughs> our, I have twins. Our, yeah. That's oh, awesome. Because awesome. um, our our main audience is about twenty five to thirty five, and uh, majority women. So I think it'll just be very beneficial and add a ton of value. Yeah, we, yeah, we really yeah. appreciate you. Yeah, I, I, I got so much data in my head. I was going to just tell, <laughs> I was going to tell you about seven percent out of every hundred or seven out of every hundred women pregnant have a breach or twin pregnancy. Wow! And most obstetricians don't know how to take care of breach or twin pregnancy other than doing a C-section. So, can you imagine finishing your training as a resident, coming out, and not knowing how to take? Let's see, seven percent is what uh, one out of every fourteen. So, one out of every fourteen women that comes to your office, you're not an expert at. I would be really angry with my residency program for not teaching me these skills because I want to label myself as an obstetrician. But what makes an obstetrician unique are doing things that no other no other specialty can do. And that's not a cesarean section. General surgeons can do those. You know, and it's and it's not pap smears. <laughs> and it's not uh prescribing birth control pills. Those are things that can be done by somebody. The things that make my profession unique are really doing the things that no one else can do, like forceps delivery, like a breech birth, like a twin birth vaginally, which is better for the babies and better for the mother. It's supported in the world literature. It's the literature that they ignore. So I, I again, I would love to start seeing physicians having more intellectual curiosity because the reason to do that is to provide a service to the clients you're supposed to be taking care of. And your loyalty needs to come back where it belongs and not where it's gone. And I hope that they see that. A lot of them hate me for saying that. I get a lot of aggravated emails um, and, and messages from people and medical doctors who, who think what I'm saying is dangerous. And um, that's fine. Continue to live in your little world. And I'll live in mine. And, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, but my outcomes are not as bad as yours. So, Well, I think too, because people feel like you know, they'll attack you because it's a threat to their very worldview and they don't want their worldview shattered. And so that's why it's easier for them to point the finger and call you names as opposed to looking themselves in the mirror and going, hmm, maybe there's something that he's saying that I can look into. And maybe well, I think, I think too, like most of these doctors, I know like friends that I have that are doctors or that have been in that field, they were taught. So this is something I mean you talk about a lot. They're the expert, right? So they don't want to be, um, questioned because they learned this in school. But the problem that I, that I personally even have with some of that from going to doctors and different things like that and asking them questions is they don't do further research than what they were taught. Most of them are not curious enough to go find what's new and to learn more than what they were taught in their medical school. And like, even I'll just say this as like a side note, but like, even with vaccines, you ask a, a traditional doctor about vaccines, they don't know. Cause all they were taught was how to inject them. They didn't have this astronomical in-depth course on everything because it's constantly even changing and shifting or whatever. So it's like, you have to be a person who wants to be informed as an individual, as a doctor at whatever like position that you're in, you have to choose. I'm going to inform myself with the most recent and best knowledge that I can. And just because you get a degree 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, doesn't mean that you should stop learning. And OBs are not experts in normal birthing because we don't get trained in normal birthing. Midwives are the experts in normal birthing. And about 80% of women are normal. Are normal. So actually, midwives should be the ones taking care of pregnant women unless they develop a problem that becomes high risk. The problem, of course, is that 
economics of it doesn't work that way. You can't have a hospital that only takes care of 20% of the pregnant women because they will go under. And we need the hospitals because the hospitals do wonderful work when it's necessary. But the problem is the obstetricians think all women, as we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, that all women um, have a medical problem. And, and they don't. And that's how they see things. And so the things aren't going to change until um, we change the, the mindset of the women in this country to realize that their body works really, really well most of the time. And the expert in normal pregnancy is not an OB. Yeah. Well, we thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Stu, and just all your wisdom, your knowledge. I know a ton of people are going to get a ton of value out of this. And uh, like, like I said, we'll have you back on if you're willing to come back on and we'll discuss um, the breaches and the twins. And, and um, we just thank you for your courage. Thank you for standing up for truth, yes. being somebody who was able to acknowledge and identify that the ways that you were practicing uh, weren't ethical and weren't right. And, and you made a switch and now you're educating others. And I know that your message is going to continue to go and reach you know, domestically and globally. And so just thank you for the work that you're doing. We, we so appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for having me on. All right. This is the most important time in the podcast because this is the time where we pray. So Father, we thank you for this day that you've made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. I thank you for Dr. Stu and for everybody listening to this podcast episode. I pray that their eyes were opened. I pray that their hearts were open to receive. Um, I pray that the wisdom and the knowledge that was delivered by Dr. Stu would go forth and make an impact. And I pray that this would be a timely message, a timely podcast episode for mothers looking for answers. And I thank you for Dr. Stu's courage and boldness to recognize problems and not just continue to contribute to the problem, but rather be a solution. And I thank you, Lord, for him stepping out. I thank you for his time today to be on this podcast so that people could be impacted, so lives could be changed, so that families could be changed. I pray hedge of protection over him as he continues to speak his message, to speak about the truth around uh, birthing. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use him. I pray that you'd bring great alignments around him to help get his message out further. And Father, I pray again for everybody listening to this episode. I pray for their families. I pray for their health. I pray, Lord, that they would continue uh, to seek you, to serve you in all that they do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out all of our resources at wearetheambroses.com. And follow us on all social platforms at wearetheambroses.com.